everybody, welcome back to A Higher Future Podcast. I am UB Simignetti, and as always, joined by my partner in good, Dr. Nicole Gravagna. Hi. Hi, UB. Who do we have with us today? So we have uh, uh, someone who um, is just, he's, I would say he's an entrepreneur guru. He's been in, 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 in the world of, of Boulder, Colorado, um, you know, leading the charge in a lot of ways. Uh, uh, helping you know entrepreneurs and building this very cool entrepreneurship ecosystem uh, with a lot of fellow uh, entrepreneurs and, and you know leaders within the space. He is the part a partner of Foundry Group, co-founder of TechStars, and author of many books, including the upcoming The Entrepreneur's Weekly Nietzsche, a book for disruptors, which we'll talk about. So, Brad Feld, welcome. How are you? <laughs> I am doing well. Delighted to be here with you. Great, great. Well, and, and how have you, how have you, you know, navigated the pandemic thus far? It's been a year. How's it been? It has. It's kind of amazing. I know. Um, and it's actually been a little longer than a year now because uh, I sort of marked the beginning of it uh, the second week of March yeah. um, when I I spent my, I remember my last day in the office quite quite visible, uh, vis- visually at this point. Um, I've isolated extremely uh, intensely. Um, my wife, Amy Batchelor and I both just consciously decided at the beginning to uh, just sort of embrace one element of it, which was the fact that we get to be together all the time. Mm-hmm. And we have had a lot of our uh, relationship, we've been together 30 years, a lot of our relationship spent time apart because of the amount of travel that I've historically done. So um, there's been, you know, a positive there against the backdrop of a huge amount of uh, challenges, stress, negative uh, anxiety and uh, uh, sadness and disappointment uh, on many, many different vectors and dimensions. And I think I've just tried to use it as a, a time period to engage deeply in things, some new, um, but around uh, around the pandemic, short term and and I would I wouldn't say long term, but medium term changes that I am hopeful about. Uh, and uh, you know, I'd like to look back twenty years from now. Hopefully, I'm still alive uh, and feel like during this period of time that some of the things that I was involved in had some element of positive uh, impact on uh, the trajectory that uh, a lot of us are on. I remember, I don't know if this was five, six years ago, maybe maybe longer, that you put sort of a moratorium on flying to events. And you said, you know, you can have me, you can have me digitally. And so you were a pioneer in that way of showing up digitally. And so did that help? Had you been keeping up with that? I, ha- I hadn't. I hadn't heard whether or not you were um, getting on planes again, but how did that go? Yeah, I... I had cut my travel back a lot, um, but like many things, uh, unless you're uh, either focused on it or uh, diligent about it, it had started to creep back in probably in a way that was, you know, where there was more travel than I wanted. Um, In 2013, I had a uh, major depressive episode that lasted uh, a little bit longer than six months. And at the beginning of that, once I acknowledged that I was depressed, I just decided to not travel for a year. Mm-hmm. And up to that point, I've been traveling 
75% of the time, you know, three out of four weeks a month, I was on the road, usually three, sometimes as much as five days um, all over the U.S., mostly U.S. So there wasn't a lot of international travel. There was some, but it was just a lot. And it wasn't, you know, go someplace for a week. It would be three places in three days or four places in three days kind of travel. And um, I, I just had it. I, did, I, I was done. And um, after a year of not traveling, part of what I also decided, I was already a good remote worker. Um, if you travel as much as I traveled, and then I had investments all over the US, so I was all over the place, but I also had stuff happening in lots of different places than I was, I had to get good at working remotely. And uh, you know, I did many. I did many board meetings from another city, not from Boulder, but from some other city I was in when the board meeting was happening somewhere else. I just couldn't get to the places. I had lots and lots of interactions. You know, even in 2013 via video, I was very comfortable. Uh, longtime user of things, you know, uh, 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 archaic technologies like Skype and WebEx. <laughs> you know, video conferencing technology has been around for a long time, and you know, PC-based video conferencing has really been around since, um, and internet-based video conferencing has really been around since uh, the turn of the century. You know, late late 90s, uh, and it just wasn't embraced. And there were a lot of people who were uncomfortable with it. There were a lot of people who felt like, well, you know, you can't really get anything done unless you're in person. There was this whole sort of business motion around that that I just didn't accept. And some of that was because I lived in Boulder and I had investments all across the U.S. So I was constantly dealing with that. But when I when I sort of shut down all this travel, um, there was a lot of sense from others of, well, OK, that's great, but that won't work. And it, it turned out it worked just fine. And, you know, were there things that I missed out on by not being in person, certain things? Yeah, sure. But that's the essence. I, you're in person for some set of things. You're missing out on a whole nother set of things that you're not in person for. So I was already in that mode. And when COVID hit, for me, it was a very natural uh, place to be, which was to shift entirely to that kind of uh, work modality. So there wasn't much disruption. Um, what was fascinating to me was within about 60 days after maybe 90 days after everybody had existential freak out about it, uh, about remote work, all of a sudden everything just started to happen again as though it was normal. Deals got done, investments got made, people bought stuff. Um, there were different kind of friction, but at the same time, there was a lot of friction eliminated. And you could see actually the velocity of certain kinds of things increase because people didn't feel the need to get face to face to do a certain set of things. And, you know, a year later, I feel like it's pretty woven into the fabric uh, of how we work now, mm -hmm. um, not as the only way to work, but, you know, we unlocked a thing that was technologically around for a long time, but for whatever reason, still wasn't embraced. It's it's funny. It's sort of the, this idea of change management. If you were to tell everyone that they this was coming, and you were going to have to work remote, and this pandemic is on the horizon, and it, and we're going to turn it on on you know March whatever day we decided was March thirteenth was the start of the pandemic. If that was like warned, people would have lost their minds for the entire time that it was coming. But as you say, it was like a two month. A readjustment and then everything went 
back to normal. It's, it's fascinating, the psychology of how we adapt, especially when we don't know it's coming. But you, you brought up um, your past history with depression, which has been a topic for so many people now during the pandemic and going forward in revisioning the way mental health is viewed, not only for individuals personally, but um, in the workforce. Now, um, companies are starting to address their workforce mental health in a way that is more than just, oh, here's a phone number you can call. What have you seen so far in terms of discussing mental health and, and what changes are, are happening? Well, I, I think the biggest thing that has shifted in the last 12 months is an acceptance that there is a substantial issue around mental health, not just in society in general, but in the workplace. And the pressure from the last 12 months, whatever that pressure is, and there's many different dimensions of it in terms of work and personal dynamics with family, uh, uh, resources that people have available to them, risk of exposure based on the work that they're doing, distance from friends and family. You know, when we were before we started this, we we're talking about extrovert versus introvert dynamic. I mean, so many different dimensions of human behavior and circumstantial dynamics that play into one's own mental health. If you even go back, you know, to 2019 in entrepreneurship, there was more conversation around the stresses of mental health with entrepreneurs, with founders in the workplace, the dynamics around it, especially around you know some issues of equity, um, different life challenges that people had. But it was not uh, it was not something that people were comfortable addressing as a priority issue. Um, in addition, you, you, you had this incredible stigma around mental health or having mental health issues in the workplace as a leader, um, as an entrepreneur, as a founder. And sort of the cliche that we've had to live with for a long time is that leaders have to show no weakness, they have to show no fear, you know, they have to just sort of lead with this incredible uh, confidence when in fact, you know, leaders, uh, founders, everybody just, we're just bags of chemicals. And, you know, we have different things that create pressure on us. We have different challenges. When things are going well, we might or might not feel great. When things are going poorly, we might or might not feel great because of other exogenous factors that may have nothing to do with, with our work. Mm -hmm. And yet there's this huge stigma around saying, I don't, I'm struggling, I'm depressed, I'm anxious. And I think with COVID and, and the, the ensuing 12 months, much it wasn't that that stigma that got eliminated, but so many people who previously didn't necessarily acknowledge their own stresses and their own struggles in the context of things or weren't open to sort of acknowledging that this is hard in a emotional, psychological, mental health way, uh, I, I think there's a lot more acceptance of that reality. Um, I also think there's a much better understanding of the different dimensions of those stressors. 
So as humans, we like to label things, you know, oh, do you have depression? Do you have anxiety? Are you bipolar? Are you have mania? Do you have OCD? Or are you just fucking exhausted? And you can't get a break. Right. And you don't know what to do anymore. And you just want to scream. Um, or something really tragic just happened to a family member and you can't visit them and you're afraid to talk about it because you're afraid that you're going to break down and people will judge you because you'll start crying when you're talking about it and in the environment that you're in, that's not acceptable. And I could give a hundred examples like this that I feel like have lifted some, right? Those pressures have eased some. Um, I was talking to somebody today, you know, that, that, um, one of their parents recently had uh, a stroke um, and, you know, my, my father had, uh, he's recovering well, but he had a heart attack uh, right after Thanksgiving and just being able to have, and my grandfather, his father actually had a very debilitating stroke, just being able to have an empathetic conversation, mm -hmm. not solving a problem, but, but being able to let the other person talk and talk to each other. Again, this is a, a business colleague in a work context, but spend a few minutes as humans together, yeah. just acknowledging like on top of everything else. Okay, now let's go deal with our business problem that we're going to talk about. But on top of everything else, like that's part of the human connection that we often get in person. Mm -hmm. Uh, although if you think about that in person, a lot of the in-person dynamics are artificial and performative, mm -hmm. right? They're at an event, they're at a bar, they're with alcohol, they're with a big group, it's in a social environment, you're judging and being judged. And so the same kind of thing around our own mental health, our own ability to have emotional intimacy with the other people we engage with, I think has shifted some uh, uh, in this in this environment for the shifted some for the better. And my hope is that it continues. Like my, my own view, one of the reasons I started being open about my own struggles with depression in 2013 was I realized the magnitude of the stigma that existed. And at that point in time, I had huge shame when I was depressed in my twenties and huge shame that I took medication and huge shame that I went and saw a psychiatrist, just incredible stigma. And in my late forties, when I did that, I, I didn't feel that anymore because of where I was in life and what I had accomplished and the work I'd done on myself. But I could see that stigma with so many others yeah. and including people when I was open that I talked to. So my hope is that we can eliminate that stigma and just recognize that this is part of our existence as humans. And that especially in a situation where we're not physically together, that kind of empathetic interaction around our own stresses and challenges in our life can be a powerful connecting force between people in the absence of physical connection. Well, it is amazing to me that this level setting event, right? And, and for, for a lot of us, a once in a lifetime event, this pandemic um, did, did open the door to so many of these things like that you're talking about. And, and to your point about empathy, I think it's, there, there has to be an intentionality to it now. There has to be an intentionality to a lot of these things. So, you know, accepting the fact that there isn't work versus life anymore, right? Like we don't have to balance those two. They're one thing now. Like we're just all living 
and working, you have a window well into my holodeck, but normally you'd have a window into my, <laughs> into my home that no one at work would ever see before. Um, and so it's just, it's such a fascinating, cause it's, it's now we do get to have conversations about mental health. Now we do get to have conversations about racial inequality and, and systemic inequalities and, and taking care of our employees, not just giving them the perks that you would expect, but really taking care of them and making sure that they're okay. Like it's just, it's this whole, it's such a fascinating, in my opinion, once in a lifetime opportunity for a lot of these things to change. Well, I'm wondering, Brad, before you, before you go on with, with uh, that, I wanted to really take note of the fact that you've been very responsible about identifying that you do have a lot of eyes on you and, and have for a long time and that people do follow your lead. And so in, in addressing this stigma, now I'm wondering if you have advice to other leaders who haven't maybe taken that empowerment of recognizing that they do have eyes on them and that they could be addressing what's going on in their lives or just being a little bit more transparent about the fact that mental health issues exist and don't have to be a stigma and are overcomable. Um, what, what advice do you have in that space for this you know, fa fantastic opportunity that we all have that UB just brought up? Uh, I think it's very, in the context of other leaders or people who are, are visible leaders, I think it's very personal. And the first place I encourage people to go is to do the work on themselves. Um, I, I have tried very hard in my own adult life not to tell people how they should be. Mm -hmm. I'm sure I screw that up. I'm sure there are plenty of situations where people feel like, you know, I've asserted that this is how it should be. I, I try to approach it as I'm providing data mm -hmm. and I'm living my own experience. And my own experience is one that changes based on the data I get. It's constantly evolving. And, you know, one of my highest values is to continually learn and to try lots of things and make lots of mistakes and be okay with being involved in both making mistakes and having failure. One of the things I've learned really in, in the last nine months around racial equity is the importance of being, as, as a visible person, being okay with being very uncomfortable mm -hmm. in certain situations. And, you know, the reflective part of being uncomfortable is that many of the people that I interact with around topics of uh, racial equity are like, yeah, tough. I'm uncomfortable every single day of my life because of, and then I, I learned from that. And so like me showing up and being okay with my own behavior, my own lack of mastery, my own inability to know what to say or what to do and being uncomfortable with that is part of the learning process. And so I really just, I, I encourage leaders to start with themselves and understand what they want to evolve and change in their own behavioral norms. And by the way, some people are like, nothing. I'm very happy. I love my life. I like the way things are. And I like the position I'm in. And I like the power that I have. And I like the privilege that I have. And I like this. And I'm not going to worry about that stuff. And it's not relevant to what I'm doing. And my own personal experience with that is 
that is true until it isn't. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people in life at some point, they have massive dislocations because they haven't done that work uh, for themselves. Sometimes the dislocation is exogenous. Something else comes out of the blue. Sometimes it's completely unexpected. It could be uh, a health-related thing or a family-related thing. But this idea that we're on a trajectory of life that's a endless, positive, unchanging, upward curve is nonsense. It's not how it works. <laughs> and so that starting point is so important. From there, to your specific question, everybody gets to explore it how they want. And at least from my perspective, and I don't want to impose my value system on others, um, nor do I want to impose, and I, I choose that word moderately carefully, impose uh, my belief system on others. Uh, what I think is so powerful for leaders though, is to expose other people to their value system and their belief system, and then let others choose what to do with it. And the inverse of that is equally important, which is as a leader to expose yourself to other people's perspectives, experiences, and value system, and then decide what you want to do with that in the context of yours. This is the work that I find very powerful um, among, among and between and within leaders, especially when you start talking about uh, leaders in uh, environments or ecosystems that are not overlapping, right? Or that are divergent or that come from different perspectives or that come from different backgrounds and lived experiences. And it's on many dimensions, including by the way, uh, a very interesting one that, that gets talked about not enough, I think, which is age, which is one that in the pandemic is very visible because if you're in your seventies or eighties or older, your risk dynamics right now are different than somebody who's in their 50s and 60s, different again than somebody who's in their 30s and 40s. And maybe not different again than somebody in their 20s, but their own life moment, right? If, if you're in college or in high school right now, like the dynamics of what's happening in those formative years for you relative to somebody that's 10 years out of college, like that dimension is another version of a dimension that's very profound in terms of how we interact with each other. And I mean, you see it not just in politics, but you also see it in all aspects of, of work and society. And I, I just encourage, if, if any of this rings true to people listening, especially in the context of the future of work, because you'll have people across all these different dimensions, whether it's gender or race or age, or sexual preference, or geography, um, cultural norms keep going. It's to try to think about how to create an environment that is additive to those experiences and incorporates uh, more add from them versus try to homogenize them. And I'll just end with this phrase I like to use. I hate, I hate when people use the word culture in a business context, because it doesn't mean anything. It's a generic word that's overused. It doesn't mean anything. I also have grown very tired of people talking about culture fit. 
uh, in that context because it's very exclusionary. Oh, you don't, you be, you don't fit in my culture, therefore you're not part of my company. Or if you want to be part of this company, you have to fit in the culture. That's not the mental model. I like the phrase culture add, is that you're looking for evolving your culture. Your norms may not fundamentally change, but you're constantly extending them. And I'll just end with, in the context of this, the geography around uh, uh, our current work environment is so powerful because when you said, look, if, if anybody wants to work for this company, they have to work in Denver or they have to work in San Francisco or they have to work in Seattle or we have two offices. We have a San Francisco office and a New York office. And if you wanna get a job here, you have to work in the San Francisco office, New York office. We're now in an environment where the answer is, well, you can still, you can still have those cultural norms, but you can also get rid of them and say people can be anywhere. And the second you do that, you have to adjust not just that underlying cultural norm, but the way people interact with each other around so many other things. We, I used to work very heavily with a, um, a software called Perrin. It's actually a local Denver company. And there's a way to measure the way culture arises, even just between two people. So two people have their own norms between them. And then you add a third person, new norms, and so forth. And I, I'm wondering now if that culture becomes so complex in that every two people, or every group of people who tend to work together will have their own set of cultural norms that are constantly in flux. So well, in, the, you know, in the context of a company or any organization, I... I believe that you can define the norms and the norms are kind of an analogy would be they're, they're guiding principles. They're not absolute truths. And there's a big difference between a guiding principle and an absolute truth, right? The absolute truth, there's conc concrete's been poured and it's dried. Um, guiding principles, not even clear you have concrete, you just have sand. Yeah. And you can kind of reshape it and move it around and, and notice new patterns. And I, I think it's so much of a better, uh, better way to live, to live in that world where it's, it, it can be shaped, it can be changed, it can be evolved based on new stimuli, new inputs, new learning, new people, new experiences. And, and we just had that. I mean, you, be, you can talk, talk about it as a once in a lifetime moment. I, I kind of do hope we don't have another pandemic in my lifetime. <laughs> right. <laughs> Although I hope to live for a while still. Yeah. And I think the probability of us having another pandemic, uh, given the evolution of so many things is high. Yeah. Um, you know, in the next 10 or 20 years. Yeah. Um, I also think the probability of us being crises that have the same impact on our society as the pandemic in the next decade or two decades is very high on a probability spectrum. And I have no idea what that is. I don't know whether, you know, the aliens are going to show up. Um, I don't know when they show up, if they're going to be like they are from arrival, where they're going to be friends and give us the key to the future. Yeah, right. Or they're going to be Independence Day, right? Like, I don't, I don't know. Or... Go down all the list of things that can happen, but there's no question that we're not in a, okay, pandemic's over, everything's good. We're in an incredibly challenging part of our existence as a species. Yeah. 
And we're at this moment in time with this collision between humans and machines and what that means. And I don't mean the robots, but just the technology that we use every day and how that technology is used to influence and manipulate large bodies of people and then how that then impacts what happens. Well, and extrapolating off of that, I mean, there's, there's so many ways we could go with this conversation. I have two thoughts. One, so one is, um, you know, that, that, that confluence of, of technology and humanity and our existence, um, how much of it is, is, and this goes back to some of the work we did together last year um, after George Floyd's murder, right? Exploring our own biases, exploring our own comfort levels uh, and exploring diversity and inclusion, um, how important that work really is moving forward. Um, and then the other path, it kind of at a grander scale, I want, you know, I'm interested in your thoughts on, you know, you were talking about leaders and the work they need to do. And, and how much though, do you believe or feel like as, as a human race, um, and in particular people starting companies and, and trying to solve problems, like how many, what, what's your belief that more, more and more companies and more and more entrepreneurs should be stepping up to help solve some of these global problems that could become, to your point, a new pandemic or a new crisis in the next 10 to 20 years. Like how much do we as a group need to step up and help to prevent those things from happening again, or, or at least having solutions in place so that when they hit, it, it, it doesn't look like it did the past year. Um. It's, a, it's an important question that's very hard for me to answer from my frame of reference. And, and let me explain why. Yeah. Um, I am uh, completely uninterested in the entrepreneurial cliche of we're going to change the world mm -hmm. because I think it is bullshit. And I think that it, emerged in some strange way, contemporary, contemporaneously, I think it's bullshit. I think it emerged in some strange way in the last decade as a rallying cry for entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And there's endless jokes about it, by the way, like ongoing, like, you know, you're gonna change the world and here's my new social media restaurant ordering app or whatever. Oh, right, right, right. And, and um, I can't actually order with it, but I can see who else is ordering at what restaurants, like, and I'm changing the world, like, like whatever that version of that cliche is. The, the problem is that um, as, as a species, we live in, in this complex system and it's a global phenomena that has many, many artificial boundaries and many uh, incumbent forces that are either trying to control what goes on or modify things to their benefit. And a good example of this from technology that's so perplexing is if you think about all of the efforts that people have to fundamentally do something different, commercial intent almost always takes over. Mm -hmm. Not always. So I don't want to make it an absolute statement. I said, I want to say almost always. 
And so this notion of, I wanna change the world or I wanna fix big problems collides with the natural motion that happens when companies become bigger and more successful, both functionally and economically, and sort of what those behavioral norms are. And as a, in the US, sort of we go through these cycles like we did a couple of years ago with the business roundtable saying, you know, businesses don't exist just for shareholders anymore. They exist for all their stakeholders. But how much of that's performative versus how much of it's actual fundamental change? And so for me, I try to put it back on other people by saying, I believe we get one, you know, one shot at this life thing. I'm, I'm of the mindset that when it's over, it's over. Um, uh, I, I guess I would like to be reincarnated. And if I get to be reincarnated, I'll be reincarnated as a golden retriever that, that uh, belongs to someone like me and Amy. Uh, uh, that, would be, that would be okay with me. I'm not sure I want to be reincarnated as a human the next time around. Um, but when you look at it from that perspective, then at least for me, it's okay, how do I want to spend my time and my energy and recognize that some of the choices that I'm going to make may have nothing to do with improving the world. And by the way, don't, you know, like, like where, where in the rule book does it say that 100% of your time and energy should be spent improving the world? And so it's starting from the frame of reference of what is satisfying to you, given the resources you have, given the lived experience you have, given what is stimulating and motivating to you. And it kind of comes back to a thing you said earlier is doing the work on yourself to know what you care about mm -hmm. and what you want, and then trying to incorporate that into whatever motion you're in, in terms of the work as an entrepreneur. And I think that's where it starts to get really powerful and interesting. And it's not to be diminishing of anyone who thinks that they're doing something that can have really significant impact on the world. I think that's a great motivation. But as a label or as a lightweight sort of comment, it's, it's worthless. As a fundamental mission that you're on for a period of time, defining it against your own motivations and then building that, for example, into the cultural norms of whatever company or business you create or the businesses that you create, or things you get involved in, that's how it goes. So that's why I say it's hard for me to answer because the easy answer would be, yeah, absolutely. People should be spending way more time working on pick your topic, right? Um, you know, I, I believe that we have a massive climate crisis. Amy, my wife is on the board of the Nature Conservancy. We spend a lot of our time and energy um, uh, around climate issues philanthropically. Um, you know, we have a massive racial equity issue in the U.S. that's existed since the beginning, and there's many, many things to do about that. We have huge amounts of income uh, and, 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 and resource in, in, in inequality and inequity, including across business, including across geography in many parts of the U.S. We have huge artificial boundaries that get created that then cause second order effects that are messed up. For example, all the stuff going on around voter suppression uh, right now. And there are many, many businesses that could help with that, either directly or indirectly. But I think it does come back to the individual having to be clear on what they're trying to do and accomplish, which will change. I know what I care about at age 55 is different than what I cared about at age 25. 
And that's, that's part of the, the interesting thing as well. Well, now that we've gotten into existential philosophy and strategy on, on what to do with our time and our <laughs> talking about the future of work, that's our, our company. No, let, let's let's uh, take this into giving us a little preview into your upcoming book, The Entrepreneur's Weekly Nietzsche, a book for disruptors. And um, and so can you just give us give us a preview so we know what to expect there? Sure, uh, and 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 one minor correction: um, it's Nietzsche, Nietzsche. Uh, not Nietzsche, but that's part of why we named it weekly because we knew that that would weekly cause Nietzsche. Weekly Nietzsche. Nietzsche. That was kind of fun. Um, Just I, mess with everybody. Yeah, a little bit. Um, I I wrote this book with my first business partner, Dave Jilk. Um, we were partners from. 1987 to 1993 in a company, and we are still very close friends. And um, uh, it was really a project that that he came up with that we sort of embraced doing a project together that would result in a tangible thing. Um, we've done a few companies together since, but but this was a, a way for us to work on something that wasn't a company. And uh, it comes out in in uh, in May. And part of the motivation, ultimately, after we landed on Nietzsche and wanting to do some stuff around Nietzsche as a philosopher and entrepreneurship was Ryan Holiday and all of the work he's done uh, with stoicism and entrepreneurship. And, and Ryan is an amazing writer and has been a powerful force um, uh, around introducing a type of philosophy, a la stoicism, into entrepreneurship and a way of being, a la the stoics philosophy with leaders and with entrepreneurs. And um, both Dave and I uh, uh, are fascinated with Nietzsche and think that Nietzsche is a very, very important philosopher uh, who is also very misunderstood. And he's partly misunderstood because he's hard to understand, uh, which is part of the point. But the other is that a lot of people have co-opted elements of his philosophy in ways that are very uh, confusing. And, and in a lot of ways, uh, don't feel good. Um, but fundamentally, a lot of that co-opting is, is uh, really mythology or incorrect uh, or are things that are built on top of things that weren't actually things. And so as we dug into it and, and started to look at it, we came up with uh, a number of quotes from Nietzsche that were very applicable and very powerful in the context of entrepreneurship and leadership. And uh, what we ended up doing was we wrote a weekly version versus a daily version. We decided the world didn't need 365 Nietzsche quotes. So we did 52 of them. And we wrote an essay uh, about each one. And then for about half of them, we, we have uh, a narrative by an entrepreneur that relates back to that. Um, and as we were working on this book, we both really went deeper and deeper into Nietzsche. I would say Dave went deeper first, but I have subsequently done that work. And I would say that in the same way with regard to entrepreneurship, that stoicism relates to tactics. Uh, Nietzsche relates to strata, strategy. Hmm. And there's a more provocative Nietzsche is, is a more provocative approach than the Stoics. With the Stoics kind of like, here's, here's ways to behave. Here's things to do. Here's what to value. And it's a, it's a style, it's a type of philosophy. Nietzsche is not purporting to say, this is how you should be. 
but instead he's really provoking uh, you with deep insights, sometimes again, hard to process because of the writing and the language is, you know, late 18th century, late 19th century and German. Uh, uh, but the power of that sort of when you pull it apart and then apply it to contemporary entrepreneurial activity is very powerful. So I've written a bunch of books. I'm now starting to wander away from the books like Venture Deals or Startup Communities, which have some philosophical underpinning, but have a lot of, you know, here's how it works, um, or here's how to think about it, or here's how to do it. And sort of heading as I'm getting older and writing more into this area of, here's some things to think about. And I don't know the answer, but there's some stuff in here that might be useful for you. And that's what we tried to do with the book. Well, that's awesome. We look forward to that. Um, it, so it comes out in May. So everybody look for that. Brad, thank you, man. This was so great to, to see you and to connect. I love this conversation. We'll have to do it again because I think there's so much more going on that we could talk about. But thank you. You'll be in the cult. It's a delight to do it. And now that we can just do it virtually, it's easy for all of us. Yeah, let's start our own podcast. <laughs> a third podcast. Uh, well, thank you all for, for continuing to tune into A Higher Future. Uh, check out the links and, and everything and you know where we post this. But really appreciate you all tuning in. Take care.